This morning's epistle reading comes from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 15 to 23. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for all who believe, according to the works of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our Gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are five sections of teachings, um, probably to mirror the five books of the Jewish Torah, the foundational books, the first five books of our Old Testament. And today we get to the climax, the last of the last of the five readings beginning at chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll put the sheep at His right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When it comes to surprises, I have to confess I have mixed feelings. I really enjoy surprising others. It was fun last week to conspire with the session and the worship committee and the personnel committee and surprise Carrie by recognizing her ordination anniversary. It is fun to plan a surprise party or to surprise someone with a gift and see that wide-eyed look of amazement and joy on the face of someone we care about. But I have to admit, I'm not quite as excited when it comes to be, being the one who is surprised. I'm a planner and list maker. I like to be prepared and at least have the illusion that I'm, I'm on top of things. But when it comes to surprises, you're no longer in charge and you're, all your preparations and plans and lists are worthless. For all those reasons, I have to confess I am a much better giver of surprisers than receiver. How about you? I ask this question because this passage from Matthew 25, which is Jesus' last and, mo- and climactic teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, this teaching is full of surprises. We might be surprised to hear Jesus talk about judgment based on actions rather than on faith. Many a Christian has read or heard this passage and asked, how do we square this with Jesus' teaching here with the idea that we are saved by faith, justified by our faith and not by our works? Well, Carrie or I could devote not just a sermon, but an entire preaching series to justification and salvation and heaven and hell and related topics. This would not be the text to kick off that sermon series. Why? Because the question being answered here in this passage is not how are we saved. No, the passage is, the question being answered in this passage is how are we to live as Christ's followers now? To say that we are saved by faith does not mean that we are not judged, does not mean that we are not held accountable for our actions. As N.T. Wright has pointed out, while many Christians like to focus on heaven as something up there and out there, that is beyond our normal lifespan, the Bible and God seem to be much more concerned about heaven being found down here on earth and now rather than later. After all, think about it. What do we pray for each week in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What is at stake here in Matthew 25 is not eternal judgment, but how are we, we are to live here and now. Which brings us to the greatest surprises in this passage. One's found at the very center of the passage, the surprises of the sheep and goats. Did you notice how both are surprised by Jesus' sayings? Lord, when did we? 
Lord, when did we not? They asked. Did you also notice that they're not surprised by their behavior? They don't deny what was said, whether they fed the hungry or not, whether they cared for the sick or not, visited the imprisoned or not. In fact, neither group denies their behavior. Rather, they're surprised that they failed to recognize the Son of Man. Or more to the point, they are surprised by where the Son of, the, Son of Man, that is Jesus, hangs out. Where do they expect God's Messiah to hang out? Probably where the king is described at the beginning of this parable, sitting on a throne of glory surrounded by angels. But while Jesus can be found there in heaven, what Jesus is telling he, us here in Matthew 25 is that on earth, we can expect to see Jesus in the face of the hungry and thirsty, standing with the stranger and the prisoner, present among the naked and with the sick. Here on earth, the God we see revealed in Jesus Christ is revealed not in power, but in vulnerability. Not among the proud and the great, but among the lowly and disadvantaged. Where will we find Jesus? The late Charles Colson found him in prison. If you are of a certain age or if you've gone back and read about Watergate, then you will remember Charles Colson. He was probably the most ruthless of Nixon's advisors, and he went to prison. On the way to prison, he became a Christian, and when he got out of jail, he founded several prison ministries. Colson had seen the best and worst of prison life, but even he was amazed by a prison he was asked to visit in Brazil. The Brazilian prison is called Humaita. With permission of the British Brazilian state government, this prison was taken over by a Christian ministry a number of years ago. The permanent staff was very small because the inmates were all required to work to be part of this prison. They all agreed to do that. Each prisoner was assigned to another prisoner to whom they would be accountable, and a family on the outside was assigned to them to support them, not only when they were in prison, but also when they got outside. Every prisoner was required to either join a chapel program or be part of a course in character formation. With that in mind, this is how Colson described his visit. When I visited the prison, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys, opened the gates, and let me in. Whenever, wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. The recidivism rate of this prison at that time was 4%. At the same time, in both Brazil and the United States, it was closer to 75%. How is all this possible? Colson wondered. He then continues, I saw the answer when my guide escorted me to the notorious punishment cell once used for torture. Today, he told me, that block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the, long end of a, the end of a long concrete corridor and he put the key into the lock, he paused and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, Colson replied impatiently. So slowly, that inmate swung open the massive door. 
And Colson writes, I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell. A crucifix, beautifully carved by the inmates. The prisoner, Jesus, hanging on the cross. He's doing time for all the rest of us, my guide said softly. Do you want to find Jesus? You may find Him walking in the garden, or staring at a beautiful sunrise at the ocean, or in this beautiful space as the light filters through on a November afternoon. But an even sure place to find Jesus, according to Matthew 25, is among the disadvantaged and downtrodden, because that is where He promises to be. Why is it so many folks from this church Once they go on a youth work camp or one of the domestic adult mission trips or one of the water installation trips to Honduras, why is it that so many of them want to do it again? Why is it that people regularly volunteer, not only month to month, but year after year, to serve a meal at community meals or tutor a child at Barth Elementary or work at the cluster? There are many reasons, but there is one overarching one. Because there they have met Jesus. There they have experienced the presence and power of God. What is the mission of the church, this church or any church? It's not to take Jesus that we find here out into the world. Because Jesus is already out into the world. What our mission is, is to join him out there in his work. As someone has said, it's not always true that people meet Jesus in the church and then go out into the world to share the message of the love. Sometimes people meet Jesus out in the world and fall in love with him, and they come to church to try to figure out what just happened. Are we struggling with doubt? Are we wondering where God is? Are we waiting for us to kind of get our beliefs together and then go out and do something? Well, Sometimes it's not a matter of believing and then acting. Sometimes it's a matter of acting and then believing. This is what Jesus is telling us here. That if we're struggling to find God, then take time to travel among the, down, the downtrodden and the disadvantaged, for there we will find him. Not because they're somehow more noble or less sinful than others, but because that is where Jesus promises to be. Even as we give, we will receive. We may think that we are serving other beggars, but we are the one as beggars being served by Jesus. And while like the sheep and goats, we may be surprised to find Jesus there, We really shouldn't be if we've been paying attention to the gospel. After all, this is the pattern of Jesus' life and death. He was born not in a royal palace in a great city, as we will soon celebrate, but in a stable, in an obscure village. As I shared with the children, he knew how to feed the hungry. He fed the 5,000. He told a Samaritan woman at the well where she could find living waters. He drew the scorn of the respectable and the elite by eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners that they scorned. In the last week of his life, he goes to prison and he will die nearly naked on a cross. 
The God we know in Jesus is revealed not in power, but in vulnerability. Not in might, but in brokenness. Not in judgment, but in mercy. Feeding the hungry. Giving the thirsty something to drink. Welcoming strangers. Clothing the naked. Taking care of the sick. Visiting prisoners. This is not just how we meet Jesus. This is also how we follow Jesus. These are our marching orders. Because this is how God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. As the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky learned from his own time in prison, the gospel of grace infiltrates this world not primarily through words and rational arguments, but through deeds of love. Jim Wallace of the Sojourners community in Washington has said that in our society we tend to connect with the poor in two ways, on television or in statistics. But we who follow Jesus are called to connect in a different way, in relationships. When Mother Teresa opened a leprosy clinic in Calcutta, she told a doctor, we have drugs for people with diseases like leprosy. But those drugs do not treat the main problem, the disease of being unwanted. That's what my sisters hope to provide. Food, water, clothing, care, hospitality, visitation. You know, when you think about it, these are all simple things that all of us have, that all of us can offer. We do not have to have extraordinary talents to do any of those things. We don't have to be an extraordinary leader or have extraordinary amount of money or other resources to follow Jesus. It's all so simple and yet so difficult because the world pulls us in other directions. It is the rich and the famous and the powerful who our society is fascinated with, after all. And that is not where we find Jesus. Our schedules and priorities can keep us from taking the time to do what we need to do, and that's not how we follow Jesus. Just as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. There's one more thing we need to say about Matthew 25. Sometimes we are the ones who stand in need Sometimes we are the ones starving for love or thirsty for meaning and purpose. Sometimes we are the ones, or ones we know very well, who are imprisoned by addiction or naked in grief and despair. Sometimes we are the ones who feel estranged and alone. Sometimes we are the ones sick in mind, body, and spirit, And we may well wonder then, where is God? Matthew 25 reminds us that Jesus is right here. We may not be able to see him, but he is here. Jesus does not always show up when and where we expect him or where we want him to, but he always shows up where we need need him. 
One of the many reasons we come to church is that so we can remind each other and support each other in the call to serve those in need and look for Christ in the face of those we serve. But another reason we come to church is because we need, at times, each other's help to see Jesus' presence when we are the one who is in need and stands alone. We need each other's help to see the one standing beside us even then, the one hidden in plain sight. I close with a prayer that was written by Richard of Chichester six or eight hundred years ago. But you know, may, may know it better because it was put to song in the musical Godspell. May this be our prayer each day. Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, love thee, more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. Amen.